The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston in the sanctuary of Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with us every Sunday, in person or on live stream. For details, go to fapc.org. And now, here is Reverend Dr. Scott Black Johnston. Listen now to Luke chapter 9, beginning with the 46th verse. An argument arose among them as to which one of them was the greatest. But Jesus, aware of their inner thoughts, took a little child and put it by his side and said to them, whoever welcomes this child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. For the least among all of you is the greatest. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to John, Do not stop him. For whoever is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him. On their way, they entered a village of the Samaritans to make ready for Jesus, but they did not receive Jesus because his face was set toward Jerusalem. When his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and then they went on to another village." This, my friends, is the word of God for you, the people of God. Thank you, God. Today's passage from Luke is a drama in three acts. Like most good dramas, Luke is a tale of human conflict, and the prologue to today's drama, the event that plays out before we draw back the curtain, is the moment when Jesus entrusts the ministry of good news to other people for the first time. Jesus sends his disciples out to break bread with strangers and to share the gospel. Jesus dispenses the disciples to farms and villages to bind up people's wounds and to cast out demons. Some argue that this moment when Jesus sets the disciples loose to do ministry represents the beginning of the church. And since we're talking about church or a community very much like church, we are also, of course, talking about conflict. Cue the lights, draw the curtain, it's time for act one. When the lights come up on Luke's drama, we find the disciples sitting in a circle, roasting hot dogs over a fire and arguing, arguing over who is the greatest. Now, 
This may surprise some of you, gentle souls that you are. You may find it hard to imagine that the disciples of our humble Lord were taking a break from ministry to play anything you can do, I can do better. My wife, though, God bless Amy, married into this. I was two years into the PhD program at Princeton Seminary when Amy and I were married. She joined me in Princeton and was immediately thrust into the strangely competitive world of academic theology. At every cocktail party, people sized each other up for their intellectual chops, their their fealty to certain theological camps, and their skill in translating dead languages, seriously dead languages, like nobody has spoken Ugaritic in the world in over 3,000 years. At times, Amy, an honors student in nursing, confessed that she wasn't sure what people were getting so exercised about in these debates. (laughs) You want to know why academic politics are so brutal? My friend Stan asked with a roll of his eyes. It's because there's so little at stake. (laughs) Stan was right. It can be hard to find real-world consequences at the heart of many academic disputes. The primary thing at stake in these debates were people's egos. (laughs) And of course, humans being humans, these egos were anything but small. Here the Gospel of Luke nods. Narcissism doesn't stop at the church door. Human beings, including the disciples of Jesus, can be motivated, energized, driven even by our need for validation. We need to be right. We need to be told, you're the greatest. (laughs) Our efforts to secure personal validation frequently, though, get us into trouble. Why? Well, it it turns out there are other egos around who also want to be told, you're the greatest. Is there a more dependable trigger for human conflict than to throw a couple of needy egos together in the same room, the same meeting, the same Zoom? Shaking his head, Jesus addresses the disciples' kerfuffle in a memorable manner. Put your roasting sticks down and listen. Ministry isn't about puffing up your ego. It isn't rooted in pride, it's rooted in humility. It's about doing menial work, challenging work, decidedly unglamorous work, work that at the end of the day, the world will not value. If you're looking to fill stadiums with crowds who will applaud your every action, then following me, Jesus says, is not the ticket. In God's kingdom, the most disrespected soul is typically the one who gets it, who models it, who most clearly demonstrates the way of God. And with these words, Christ draws a child to his side and says, the least among my followers will always be the greatest. Mic drop. (laughs) Or so we might wish. (laughs) 
Act one is over, the lights start to go down, it seems like Jesus has put a stop to all this chatter about who's the greatest. But before we fade to black, one of the disciples raises his hand. The lights surge back up. They shine on John's earnest brow and anguished face. John is worried. He thinks that Christ's egalitarian approach to ministry is naive. The disciple wants Jesus to establish clear boundaries around his his growing movement. Honoring a child is cute and all that, but but is it wise, Jesus? John's worried. He's worried about Christ's standards. Act two. Jesus, says John, you should know that there are people out there, people who are not close to you, people who haven't sat at your feet, people who aren't part of our tight group, who are trying to hop on your bandwagon to steal your thunder. Just last week, we saw this guy casting out demons in your name, and we told him to stop. He didn't have the right credentials. He he wasn't up to date on your most recent parables. He didn't talk like we talk. How do I put this? He he wasn't on brand. (laughs) Here, Scripture points to one of the most peculiar aspects of human conflict. We regularly pick fights vicious, I'm going to cancel your sorry carcass fights with people who are potential allies to our cause. In striving for the good, for justice, in trying to address the plight of immigrants, violence in policing, and the pernicious sin of racism, in pursuing Truly holy goals, we often find ourselves fighting with people who are more or less pointed in the same direction. Why? Why do we go after our allies with hammer and tong? Today, I'd like us to consider three long-standing aspects of human behavior that push us into fights with potential allies. Proximity, power, and purity. Three Ps. Now some say that our conflict with allies is a proximity thing. We're not in regular dialogue with our enemies. We cannot get near enough to excoriate adversaries who we believe have the power to make change. And so we take out our anger on those who live in our own moral neighborhood. (laughs) Proximity. Some suggest that our conflict with potential allies comes down to a power thing. Those who define the edges, who's in, who's out, of a movement, any movement, wield a great deal of power. John the disciple wants to exercise this kind of power. Master, says John to Jesus, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us. 
Some suggest that the biggest thing fueling our fights with allies, our battles with those who are more or less pointed in the same direction is our desire for purity. We want to fix our friends. <laughs> we want to purge thoughts and actions from our community that diverge from the truth, the truth as we understand it, the unvarnished truth. This past week, I listened to a fascinating podcast featuring Maurice Mitchell. Mitchell is the national director of the Working Families Party. Mitchell is an African-American, left-leaning political activist who has gained a reputation in recent months for lamenting the way in which progressive organizations, including heavy hitters like the Women's March, the Sierra Club, and Black Lives Matter, have been roiled by internal conflict. The title of the podcast was, The Left is Eating Itself. And you could make an equally relevant podcast entitled, The Right is Eating Itself. At the root of these fights, Mitchell argues, lie the politics of purity. If you don't bow in the right direction, if you don't espouse the authorized position on controversial issues, if you aren't pursuing moral ends using the most up-to-date vocabulary, then you can expect to be called out and shown the door. <laughs> Master, <laughs> we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop them. There's an ironic twist in today's passage. Did you catch it? John, a disciple of Jesus, actually tries to prevent someone from battling against evil, from casting out a demon. And John does this based on purity. This fellow does not follow with us. John delivers a stunning indictment, a self-own. Rather than celebrate the fight against evil, John calls someone out for trying to do good in an impure way. How often, my friends, do we sacrifice progress toward laudable goals on the altar of purity? We might as well ask, why are there so many versions of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam in the world? Because the answer to both questions is, I'm afraid, painfully obvious. The sort of diversity that we fear the most is diversity of perspective. Traditionally, we have a word for religious communities that cannot abide diversity of perspective. Fundamentalism. Now, most people associate fundamentalism with the right, but there's just as much and just as fervent fundamentalism on the left. Fundamentalists police the boundaries of religious and social movements for impurities in thought for beliefs and practices that they believe betray the core of the faith. 
100 years ago, right here in New York City, Harry Emerson Fosdick preached on this very subject. The title of Fosdick's 1922 sermon was, Shall the Fundamentalists Win? It is, I think, one of the top 10 most important sermons in American history. And in it, Fosdick addressed a Christian movement in congregations and seminaries that threatened to cast parishioners and preachers out of their churches if they did not express a narrow understanding of the virgin birth of Jesus, the inerrancy of scripture, and the return of Christ. Fosdick observed correctly that in every church there exist many different opinions on these and other matters. Expressing genuine humility, Fosdick went on to say, I'm not always certain who's wrong and who's right in these debates, but, the good reverend went on to say, there's one thing I am sure of, courtesy and kindliness and tolerance and humility and fairness are right. Opinions may be mistaken, love never is. Fosdick's instincts come, I think, from a good place. Master, said John, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he doesn't follow with us and Again, Jesus said to John, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. End of Act 2. And this time Luke 9 does give us a bit of a break. The lights do go down, the curtain closes, and, and when it opens again, Jesus and the disciples are on the move. They're headed toward Jerusalem. Act 3. Luke tells us that on their way to Jerusalem, the disciples enter a Samaritan village. Now, evidently, the Samaritans there do not roll out the red carpet for Jesus and the disciples. They are inhospitable. The Samaritans there were miffed because Jesus was focused on going to Jerusalem, a holy place for Jews, but not a holy place for Samaritans. It seems like a silly reason for not welcoming folk, and maybe that's the point. The cold shoulder shown by the Samaritan village makes the disciples mad. Specifically, James and again, John, are angry, grumbling. They run up to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? This has got to be one of the most hilariously unhinged questions ever put to Jesus. It brings to mind, if you will permit me, a pop culture reference, the end of the movie Avengers Endgame, <laughs> the moment when the big bad guy Thanos orders his spaceship to shoot lasers at the Avengers and his own troops. And, and what Thanos actually says at that moment is, rain fire. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's good to see that pop culture is still mining the Bible for some of its best material. Although, of course, it's not the most flattering moment for the disciples. <laughs> but friends, do we really, at this conflicted moment in history, have any trouble picturing it? James and John look at Jesus with hopeful expressions on their bitter little faces and say, can we please rain fire? In a response that surprises no one, no one who's been paying attention, Jesus turns and rebukes the disciples. If you think calling fire down on everyone who gets your knickers in a twist is consistent with discipleship, then you've lost your bearings. Your desire for power and purity is blinding you to the real challenges that we face, the real enemies that we've come to battle. Lights dim, curtain closes, end of act three. I want to leave you this morning with a brief epilogue to today's story. As I said last week, I do not think it is a Christian's responsibility to avoid conflict at all costs. Conflict can be, conflict is a form in which important things happen, sacred things. And it's precisely because this is true that we ought to ask, continually ask, if we are engaged in the right conflicts. Are we waging conflict because it's proximate and easy? Are we picking fights because we want to exert power over those in our vicinity? Is pursuing a quest for purity in our own families and communities distracting us from the less glamorous, absolutely gritty work of ministry? To this end, I would draw your attention to one of my favorite works of art, La Disputa, by Italian Renaissance painter Raphael. It can be found on your bulletin and hopefully is appearing on your screen. In the center of this fresco, you can see a communion table. And on that table is a golden stand holding a communion wafer. The painting depicts a theological fight, an academic debate over the nature of this wafer. Some in Raphael's time argued that Jesus could not be bodily present in communion wafers if he was in heaven. <laughs> Others argued that Jesus regularly left heaven to be present in the feast. It was quite a fight. At the bottom of the fresco, you can see theologians, clergy, cardinals, philosophers, intellectual combatants making passionate cases for their perspective. Above, in heaven, we see religious figures who've gone to their reward, saints and prophets, Moses is up there, Mary and John the Baptist too, also debating the issue. At the center of it all, presiding over the whole brouhaha, Raphael places a serene Jesus. I find it curious 
that Jesus is not picking sides in this furious debate. He doesn't cheer for one faction over the other. He doesn't point to one of the debaters and say, that guy, that guy over there in the corner, he's the one who's got the right answer. Instead, Christ holds up his hands, hands in which we can still see the marks of violence done to him on the cross. Is it possible that Jesus finds some of our conflicts less consequential than we feel them to be? Is it possible that our Lord is growing impatient with debates, internal debates that go nowhere? Is Christ waiting for his disciples to stop trying to rain fire on each other and to get back to the hard and holy work of ministry, binding up wounds, breaking bread with the hungry, and wrestling with the real demons of the age. Friends, the grace of Christ attend you. The love of God surround you. The comfort of the Holy Spirit keep you, that you may live in faith, abound with hope, and grow in wisdom, all of which will help us fight the right fights in this complicated and conflicted world. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and given you a measure of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you would like to make a donation to support this audio ministry, please visit fapc.org give. Thank you and blessings to you on this day.